You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. Good morning, Calvary. In case I didn't have a chance to meet you this morning, my name is James Thomas, and I actually live on the other side of Sudbury, and it's a very uh, great experience to be here today and to worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ with you. I also wish to thank Marg and Keith McLaughlin. They were somewhere. I think they're somewhere. Okay. I don't see them right now, but I want to thank them for their... Oh. There they are. I see you now. Okay. Thank you very much for your hospitality. It's been great. And I also wish to thank Pastor Mark for inviting me here today. So, as I was preparing this section of God's Word, I listened to some of your previous sermons over the past couple of weeks. And I want to thank your church family for allowing these sermons because they spoke to me. And they encouraged me in my faith. So I hope today that we'll be able to continue this and that your faith would also be encouraged. So as we begin, I'm going to ask you to consider a question. How exactly does a church stand firm? The words stand firm are important to the letter to the Philippians. The command to stand firm does occur in other letters that Paul writes, such as 1 Corinthians, we have it in Galatians, we have it in 2 Thessalonians. However, in Philippians, there is a uniqueness to it. The command is the only place in any of the letters where the command is stated twice. If you quickly look, Philippians chapter 1. Verse 27, you will see that in, your, in God's word, there is the command to stand firm. And I found from the context of Philippians 1, verse 27, it's not actually immediately clear. How does a church stand firm? Yet, I believe that is why the Lord God has given us the ability today to look into his word and to see how exactly this is done. It is my hope that you will be able to see, but also answer from the word of God, how does a church stand firm? And we're going to see this from Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 12, to chapter 4, verse 1. Yet before We begin to answer this question. I'm going to invite you to please join with me in prayer. Lord God, we are here before you this morning and we wish to praise you. We praise you because you are a creator. You see and you hear all things. You have lovingly given us your word to light our path and to guide us. We praise you that we have the privilege to call you our Father. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing what we could not do on our own. We were dead. 
We were not your people. We were lost and without hope. Yet, you called us by name. You reached down and touched our hearts. You breathed your word into us and you gave us new life. We praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray that your spirit would move in power among us and that your word would continue to transform our innermost being. Spirit, please allow the name of the Son to be glorified this morning. And we pray this all in Jesus' loving and most beautiful name. Amen. Thank you, church, for praying with me. Now, I invite you to please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verse 12, and we're going to go to chapter 4, verse 1. Now, in the interest of clarity, I didn't know exactly what translation you guys mainly read from. I see it's a Christian Standard Bible. But today, I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. They're very similar. So I invite you to please follow along in your Bibles as I read from chapter 3, verse 12, to chapter 4, verse 1. Because it is my hope that you will be able to answer from the word of God, how does a church stand firm? So, the word of God, chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, Join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Now, brothers and sisters, it's going to sound a little counterintuitive, but I'm actually going to begin in chapter 4, verse 1. Look again at God's word. Chapter 4, verse 1. We have two key words in this verse. We have the words, therefore, and thus. Now, I did a brief survey of very common English translations, and I saw that the ones I looked at, everyone begins with therefore. But there's a variety of different words used for thus. So in your Bibles, you might see thus, or the word so, or even the words in this way. 
See, the words therefore and thus are logical conjunctions. They are words that link ideas together. Think of a quick link that holds together two separate chains. These words provide a bridge, and it's really important. I'm spending time on this for you to see clearly what's going on in the flow of the letter. Paul is writing and concluding his thoughts of chapter 1 to chapter 3. Hence, we have, therefore, he is preparing the church for his major exhortations that are coming in verse 2 to 9. Yet, I want you to please look, chapter 4, verse 1, and see the transition that's given. This transition is like a a two-sided arrow. One points backwards, within a median sense, to chapter 3, verse 17. But really, it also points all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27. But the other side of the arrow points forward to the rest of chapter 4. See, there's a lot going on with the imperative of stand firm. But how is the command dressed? How is it garnished? Does the command come smothered in some warm chocolatey goodness? Or is this command kind of given like a cold, hard, underdone potato? Look at the word of God. The command is poured out in love. My brothers... Whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. And again, the words, my beloved. See, Paul is not speaking like some drill sergeant here, ordering around some subordinates. No, he is speaking to a beloved family. Paul is encouraging out of love for them to do what they need to do. So what's the main idea? Chapter 4, verse 1. The main idea is to stand firm in the Lord. But how do we do that? How does a church stand firm? Well, we need to follow the word. We need to look upstream to see what's flowing in front of us. We need to follow the therefore, but now look to chapter 3, verse 12 to 16. And these next set of verses help us understand how does a church stand firm. See, I believe chapter 4, verse 1 is pretty clear. Stand firm. And I think it's understandable for us to ask the question, well, how? How do we do this? How? Look again, verse 12 to 16, to see our first way how a church can stand firm. The word of God says this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the pro- for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Now, we've read this, and I bet some of you are like, okay, how exactly does this work? How does this section help a church stand firm? I'm glad you're thinking. I'm glad you're listening. Because we're taught in English class, in school, we always begin our paragraphs with a topic sentence. Then we have three proofs, 
And then we have a concluding thought. This is standard English form and style. However, we need to know that the Bible did not fall out of the sky written in English. The Bible was written, the Apostle Paul did not adhere to the stylistic form of a language that didn't even exist in the first century. So regardless if you're a believer here or not, we need to approach this ancient document on its own terms and not to impose our own expectations upon it. See, it's kind of like being invited to someone's house and you're sitting down at the dining table and then you tell them how to cook the meal. It's, no, don't do that. We need to recognize that we need to approach the Bible with a certain respect. And that is why we're actually going to start in verse 15 to 16. It does feel weird. It seems strange to parachute into the middle of a paragraph, but I hope it will become clear. Verse 15 has an exhortation. Verse 16 has an encouragement. These verses actually contain the burden of verses 12 to 16. There is an appeal, an encouragement for the mature. Do you see that in verse 15? God's word says, let those of us who are mature think this way. The mature actually have a certain way of thinking. And God promises in his word today that he will reveal the right way of thinking to them. Furthermore, verse 16, God also encourages the mature to hold on to what they have already obtained. Now, a natural question is, okay, well... Who are the mature? Right? It would be really easy, especially for me now, to say, okay, I can look out. If there was a sunbeam on those who are mature here, I could say, okay, sister, this is for you. Brother, this is for you. Right? But we don't have that. No, we don't have that. And that's not how things work. See, the local church actually needs to know who are the mature. The local church needs to know who are the most Christ-like. And in verses 12 to 14, we can see two characteristics of what characterizes a mature Christian. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now God's word speaks to us about the first characteristic of a mature Christian. This characteristic, I will argue, is probably the most important characteristic of a mature Christian. And that is humility. Notice the wording. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. So brother and sister, if you're here today and you think that you've arrived in your Christian walk and that you're perfect, you think, oh, I really don't need to change anymore. I'm good, just the way I am. Well, God's word tells you, you have not arrived. You still need to grow in your relationship with the Lord. You haven't reached your final destination, because if you did, you would be in glory right now. See, the one characteristic of a mature Christian that's given in verse 12, is that they know they haven't arrived. They know they're not perfect. 
and they know that Jesus Christ has broken into their life. That Jesus Christ has come into their heart. And they can say honestly and truthfully, Jesus Christ has taken me wholly captive. And I have no idea where I would be without him in my life today. They know they belong to the Lord. And this is a sign of maturity. Second sign of a mature Christian is found in 13 and 14. Again, this second characteristic is that a mature Christian presses forward. Look again, God's word. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. In other words, just like the Apostle Paul, there is a discernible movement and growth in mature Christians. I remember the words of my former mentor when I came across these words. He told me that in pastoring, you run with the runners. Why? Because they're already moving. They're already actively pursuing the word and the Lord. Again, one of my professors in Bible college repeatedly told us, God loves to to steer a moving ship. So brothers and sisters, I ask you, please evaluate yourselves in the light of God's word. Are you moving forward? Now, I have to ask myself the same question, right? The word needs to preach to me as much to you. Are you any different than you were five years ago, three years ago, or even just one year ago with your walk with the Lord? Brothers and sisters, we cannot be focused upon the past. The mature Christian recognizes and acknowledges the past, but is primarily concerned with how do I serve Christ now and in the future? The mature Christian is interested and concerned with pursuing Christ to the fullest extent in the present. The mature Christian doesn't spend their time reminiscing over the good old days, such as I know people in my life, all they ever talk about is what they did 20 years ago. Yet they do nothing for the church now. God in his word tells us that we cannot do this. Look at the word. No, we are forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Mature and mature Christians have their mindset upon how do I serve Christ now? I honestly ask you to please check yourself, to ask yourself, how? How am I serving Christ in his church? See, the second characteristic of a mature Christian is that they press forward. As verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, in essence, a mature Christian is heaven-bound. Now, I hope that you do see that there are two characteristics. It's not exhaustive, but these are two characteristics given by God's word about what a mature Christian is. Mature Christians are able to step back and look at their life and see that it's like a massive jigsaw puzzle. Sometimes the pieces don't fit in quite right, And it's frustrating, it's hard, but they recognize that the puzzle isn't finished. Just like your life, it is not finished. We need to see that we aren't complete. 
See, some people tend to think that a mature Christian is someone who's been going to church for over five years. That is not the case because God's word focuses upon character. And I believe it's really easy to see from God's word why we need mature Christians in the church. And that is why mature Christians actually need to be known in the local church. Because younger people need to know who, who, who am I to follow? And actually the best place to look, if you want to see a mature Christian, the best place to look is to look and see who are your elders. They're not there because of some strange popularity contest. No. They are there because they are mature Christians. And that is why they need to be identified. The local church best expresses its concept of maturity through its leadership. So how does a church stand firm? Well, the first way is for the local church to to stand firm is by identifying who are these mature Christians. The church needs to know who is humble, who is actively pursuing Christ alone, and who is holding on to the faith. Yet the second reason for this identification is developed further in 17 to 21. Now, I hope you saw in verses 12 to 16 what characterizes a mature Christian. But why do we need to identify them? Is it just like a merit badge so they can just put on their sash and walk around? No, no. To answer this question, we need to look again at God's word. It is why we need to identify mature Christians and how this clearly helps the local church stand firm. Look again, verse 17 to 21. I believe these verses will help solidify things. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But... Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, to help explain this section of God's word, I'm going to give you an example of my life and something that's going on. So currently, I'm actually in the process of um, discerning And another local church is discerning me being their senior pastor. That's kind of where I'm at right now. But in the meantime, I've been working as a small engine mechanic at a uh, local hardware store. And see, I'm going to share with you my demographics of the workplace. Because it's quite interesting. Really, you have two groups. One side, you have 50 and older. And the other side... 20-something, 21, 22, and younger. I'm really the only person that's in between. And I try and listen to both sides. Most who are 50 and over are frustrated with the younger ones. They view that the kids don't have a good work ethic. That you need to babysit them. Whereas on the other hand, the younger workers feel like they're just not being heard. They don't seem to pursue work fully because they're primarily focused upon building relationships. That's the meaning. Yet these two groups 
just don't seem to spend time with each other. They silo themselves into their age groups. Now, I know this sounds really negative. Like, it sounds like a terrible place to work, but really, it's really nice. I actually really like working there. My coworkers are agreeable, they're pleasant, and they're good people. I mention this situation because I believe and I think the same thing can sometimes happen in local churches. Yet God in his word warns us what happens when we isolate ourselves from intergenerational serving. What happens when the mature stop talking? What happens when the younger stop listening? Look again, God's word. Verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Brothers and sisters, how many of you, like me, know people that match these verses? In my experience, they are mostly people who have spurned godly wisdom in their lives or the mature didn't feel like acting. The rejection of God's word, the rejection of the wisdom and the counsel of the mature has led them to become enemies of the cross. I know. I see them in my heart right now. I hate it. It makes me sad. What does God's word say? Their end is destruction. They have their mind set upon earthly things. I mourn that they are enemies. Yet look again, God's word. Verse 19, do you see the words with mind set on earthly things? The words mind set on earthly things is a summary of everything that came before. Because they are focused on... are focused on the earthly things. They're not focused upon our Lord and Savior. They're not focused on Christ. So if you're here today and you have one eye off of Christ, you're in danger. Grave danger. Because once you take your eyes off of Christ, you go off course, you start drifting, and then when you start, before you even know it, you end up in a place you didn't expect. If you stop moving towards Christ, you are moving away from him. So this section of God's word is a warning to God's people. Do not take your eyes off of Christ. He alone is our prize. Because if you do, if you focus upon the earthly things, let the weeds choke out. The word, your end is destruction. Yet, friend... Neighbor, even brother and sister in Christ, there is hope. There is hope in the name of Jesus Christ. Your friend, your family member, your co-worker still can be called home. Jesus Christ took upon himself our disobedience. 
Our rebellion, our idolatry, and our self-worship upon himself on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He died so that we could be set free. It is through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we believe and are given new hearts. Hearts that want to pursue Christ. Hearts that want to listen to the word. So I invite you, if you are here today, please accept the message of salvation for all people. You too can have this heart to believe, to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, to ask for forgiveness, and to know his love and his peace. Please, I beg you to save yourself from this twisted and adulterous generation. Save yourself from what is to come. And that is why, brothers and sisters, why we're now looking at verses 20 to 21. God's word in 20 to 21, which is to provide a strong contrast and encouragement and speaking in love to you, brother and sister, who have accepted the gospel and love our king. He is speaking to you right now, to those who are pursuing Christ with your whole being, because your citizenship is in heaven. You are citizens of the kingdom. See, your place is being reserved. It's being made. Our Lord and Savior has gone ahead of us and preparing a room for you. It is your true forever home. And the good news just doesn't stop. Please look at 21, the amazing promise that we have by the power that Christ has to subject all things to him. He will transform our lowly bodies into glorious heavenly bodies like his. See, I can't even begin to imagine what that would be like. Can you? I, just, it's amazing. I like, it would just be like heaven, wouldn't it? See, a new life without the corruption of sin. And I want you from the here, from the word of God, that Jesus Christ loves you. He has a plan for you. We are lowly, broken, fragile bodies will be transformed to be like our Lord and Savior. We will have a resurrection body. We will not just be with Christ as spirits. No, we are meant to be a union of flesh and spirit. We will live bodily with our Lord forever. And brothers and sisters, that is good news. And I'm so excited with this news and the good news we've just looked at. But we actually need to go back. The last stone that we're going to kind of pull off today is in verse 17. And this is the immediate concern of God's word of why we need to identify mature Christians. And this is how a church stands united. This is how God's people pursue Christ. God's word says, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, you, I'm just going to speak for everyone. I don't think anyone's old enough to say they personally knew the Apostle Paul. Right? But I'm sure you have people like me who are in your life that are godly who are like Paul. And it is our responsibility to know them. The key to understand is we need to join and walk with mature Christians. Look again, verse 17. 
We are to join, keep our eyes on, and walk with them. This theme of joining and walking is also seen in another letter written by Paul. Titus chapter 2, verses 2 to 8. Where older women teach younger women, and older men teach younger men. The mature provide an example of how to live by faith. And I'm going to read this section of God's word because I believe that it's worth quoting in full. Titus 2, verses 2 to 8. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, self sorry, sound in the faith, in love and in steadfastness. Steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. See, this is the will of God in your life. Older men and women are to model what it means to live with Jesus Christ. God tells us this is what the church is supposed to do. So it's important. Because some of you, I believe, some of you, are like me. I am the first born-again Christian in my family for three generations. I have no model in my family. And that is why I need the church. I need to come alongside an older man and be like, how do I love my wife like Christ? Loves the church. How do I do that? How do I I discipline my children in the fear of the Lord? I need older, mature men in my faith. And I can't tell you how important it is. Similarly, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, those who are mature, I ask you, please take the time to actually listen and not assume what the younger people are trying to say and to encourage them in their faith. Similarly, those who are younger actually need to seek out the advice of the older. See, in my workplace, I experience every day what happens when people don't join together and learn from one another. And when church is sharing life together as a church family, living and working side by side, they're able to help one another. Brothers and sisters, how many of us have heard the old saying, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure? Well, God has given us the ounce of prevention. God has called you together as a church family. Some of you are mature in your faith and some of you are maturing. And we need each other in loving, intentional, intergenerational relationships. See, it's in this context of an honest, loving relationship that you can actually say... Sister, 
is everything okay? You're not at church anymore, and I actually really miss you. Now, the only way you can actually say that is if you have a real relationship. You can't say that if you don't know them. See, I strongly urge those who are younger to hang out with old people. Okay? My oldest daughter, she's 11, and she constantly tells me, Dad, you're so old. <laughs> right? So, there's a natural ingrain to not want to hang out with people who are older than you. But we have to. And I'm going to give one example. Actually, two examples, but the first one I think will make sense. So, for example, you might be a 20-something. Say you find out that you actually seem to have a growing passion for woodworking. Okay? And you learn that some brother in the church is passionate about cabinet making. Very fine woodworking. Okay? So you talk to him. You talk to him. You don't watch YouTube. Go and talk to him. Like, seriously. And ask him if he's willing to show you the ropes. Maybe he gives you a book. Well, go and read it and then talk to him. See if he will take the time to work with you. See, if we can do something simple like that, if we can learn in this way, I'm going to ask you a really radical question, really radical idea. Are you, are you guys ready for this? Are you hold on to your seat? Okay. If we can do something like this, if we can learn from an older person about cabinetry, how much more can we learn from the mature about things that are eternal, such as God and his word? Such as sitting down, one-on-one conversations with our Bibles open. What does this actually mean in my life today? See, the local church needs brothers and sisters who are mature in their faith. Those who are mature are those who are humble and actively pursuing Christ. And they encourage the younger to pursue Christ. Because the pursuit of Christ is our goal. He, this singular focus determines, determines the direction of the church. See, the church stands upon Christ, his word. And if the church has mature Christians who are pursuing Christ, seeking to be obedient to the word, then this goal actually binds together the church. Brothers and sisters, that is how the church stands firm. The local church stands firm upon the solid rock that is Christ. The local church stands firm together as a multi-generational unit. The local church stands firm by joining together, by growing with each other, by walking together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That is how a church stands firm. The church stands firm together as a family. So as we end today, I'm going to ask you to please join with me in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you know each of us by name. You know our cares, our concerns, and our innermost desires. 
And we pray, Father, that your spirit would continue the good work that you began in us. We pray that we would grow and become more conformed to the image of your son. Please allow us to say that there is no greater joy in this life than to do your will. Please allow us to rejoice in love your salvation. And I thank you so much for the gathering of Calvary here today. To worship you in prayer, in song, and now as we approach your table. We pray that all these things would glorify the name of your beloved son. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.